Hello, everybody, and welcome to Chasing Phantom, the podcast about Broadway's longest-running shows. I'm your host, David Timberline, and I've been looking forward to this episode for months because we are talking about Les Miserables, my personal favorite musical of all time, and specifically, we're talking about the 2014 revival of this epic, amazing show. Could I ramble on for hours about Les Mis? Of course I could. But instead, I've convened a panel of Les Mis experts who will go beyond just dissecting this monster show full of big themes and big emotions. Do you have kids? You'd like to get interested in theater and or literature? We talk about that. Do you wonder whether younger theater lovers can handle complex moral concepts? We talk about that. And do you wonder what hilarious ways the lyrics of Les Mis songs are sometimes misheard? Yes, we even touch on that. So let's join the largest collection of Timberlines ever assembled for a podcast already in progress. Okay, people, as I say on the website, I cannot be objective about Les Mis. It is the musical I've seen more than any other. I'm not exactly sure how many times I've seen it, but it's in the neighborhood of seven or eight. I've seen both the non-musical... What? At least. At least. I've seen both the non-musical and musical movie versions, and I just saw, with my lovely wife, a touring production in Richmond, Virginia, just a couple months ago. So since I can't be objective, I've invited a panel of three people to talk about the show who may or may not be more objective than me. Spoiler alert, they're not more objective than me. (laughs) (laughs) Not coincidentally, they're all Timberlines. (laughs) First, there is Holly Timberline, who, besides being my wife of 33 years, is a licensed clinical occupational therapist who specializes in the treatment of children with neurodevelopmental differences. Hi, Hall. Hi, hun. How's it going? <laughs> Pretty good. Wait, is it really 33 years? It's, I think it's 32. Uh, you know what? You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how they've stayed married 32 years. That's it. <laughs> so also on the line, there is Sage Timberline, who has been my daughter for her entire life, who is also a second year fellow in pediatric intensive care at the University of Virginia Medical Center. Hi, Sage. Hi, Daddy-o. How's it going? It's great. So glad to be here. I'm glad you're here as well. And finally, there is Bryce Timberline, also my daughter for her entire life, who works as a prevention specialist for Jefferson County Human Services in Colorado. She assists family in attaining and maintaining safety and stability through casework, home management, and counseling referrals. Hi, Bryce. Hi. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for tuning in all the way from Colorado. It must be much harder to tune in from out there. It is. That's why I'm your favorite child. (laughs) Obviously. Duh. All of these people have have both more education and more letters after their names than I do. So I'm very glad they took the time out of their very busy schedules to chat about the best musical in the world. I'm going to give some stats about the 2014 revival of Les Mis, and then we'll chat about it. It ran for 1,024 performances. It opened in March of 2014 and closed in September of 2016. It was nominated for three Tony Awards, including Best Revival of a Musical, but it did not win any. Boo, hiss. (laughs) The box office for the run was $108.5 million, which translates to about $137.5 million in 2023 money. Wow. This production is the first of several revivals I'm going to be covering on the podcast. The original Broadway production is sixth on the all-time list. And we think Les Mis is popular here in the States. The London, the original West End London production ran for 14,000 performances, longer than Phantom did on Broadway. It is the longest running musical 
on the West End and is the second longest running show behind The Mousetrap. Also, you can currently see Les Mis in the West End of London, professional production, a revival that's been going on there since 2019. So get your plane tickets and get on out there, kids. Yeah, when's our next family trip to London? Yeah. <laughs> I'll check our travel agent. Okay. Dave, I think you should just get like the people in charge of this podcast to send us on oh, their dollar. Great idea. I'll talk to the management. Sounds good. <laughs> There'll be more time to talk about Les Mis later when I get to number six on this list. But this is mostly to talk about the 2014 revival and my family's personal relationship with Les Mis. The 2014 revival was largely a result of the 2012 movie, which raked in more than $440 million internationally and spurred interest in reviving it on Broadway. So we all saw it. We went to see it a couple months before it closed. But before yep. we get into that, I'm curious, who of you remembers the first time you saw Les Mis? We've, it's so endemic in our family culture. I'm just wondering if anybody remembers that moment when you actually first saw it. I have some memories of what I thought was the first time I saw it. Yeah. I now believe that it was not the first time I saw it, but I have some memories of looking at Sage and watching Sage watch the show <laughs> how blown away we were by the set in particular i remember uh -huh. the lights i i mean what jumps out to me the most is the barricade and just how intense and how much it just comes to life when the two sets you know come together in the middle of the stage um with the chairs and they climb up and the lights are crazy and the all of that was just so cool and just brought that that part of the the music which at that point to me was always what we knew the most was the music sure. and honestly some of those pre-revolutionary hype songs were not the songs that sage and i liked the most <laughs> we liked the ones that had the girls and we liked castle on the cloud and some of the love story pieces not really the rally cries but then they became so powerful when they were actually on stage and i remember it that the first time seeing that live and being totally blown away and looking at Sage to be like, whoa, this <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not really even going to bother recapping the plot of Les Mis. I mean, if you don't know it, you just got to Google it. But it's got really it's got really something for everything. You've got revolutionaries. For me, particularly as I've gotten older, it is like the ultimate father story because oh, you have man. Jean Valjean who, yep. you know, basically adopts an orphan and raises her as her own child. It's just always breaks me up. It's a it's a very gray story of not quite good, not quite evil, that interplay. And I was wondering for you girls, it has two adorable child stories too. You have Cosette and you have Gavroche. Do those like, did those like stick with you, particularly when you were younger, you think? Actually I remember always being especially struck by Eponine's story. Uh. I don't know why, but like and it's funny because when you read summaries of the plot, it will sometimes describe Eponine and another sister who I totally forgot about because she doesn't sing, both be sort of beating up on Cosette. Oh. And in hindsight, I don't remember that at all. I just remember Eponine was the lucky one at that time. She was like the one who had it better off. Right. And then that role so dramatically flipped through the rest of the story. And she just became this I don't know, just a very raw source of emotion and sort of a maybe even the most lonely character of the whole story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think from 
forever. I was always a little bit fascinated by her character. That and that, and she also has a sort of child. She maintains sort of a childlike state through her whole plot line, right? And so I think that was interesting to me as a kid too. Yeah, it's so tragic. My God, there's so many tragic elements. She's probably she's one of the more the most tragic elements because she has this unrequited love that she she dies but, kind of thinking she's gotten what she's expected, but. I mean, mm-hmm. I yeah. guess like yeah. one of the things I love about it is that you you can have a slightly different nuances of what you take away from it and they all kind of work because I definitely think Eponine is it really is a tragic character. I hadn't really made that connection, Sage, until you said that, that she doesn't really get to grow up and progress in her life and and live out any other roles like some of the other characters do. I mean, we say we see Cosette like she gets to live all these different stages and then progress through life in this beautiful way. And Eponine doesn't really get to do any of that. And she has this like unending pain of loving this guy who doesn't love her. He likes her fine, like they're pals and he wants her help getting who he really loves. But then that where she dies in his arms, it's like so, so tragic, but it's, you know, that that's like the closest that she's going to get to having his love. So it's this, it's terrible and tragic, but it's also like, well, at least she has that, which is a terrible thing to have, but to mention she dies because she's bringing him a letter from the woman that he actually loves, which is like also kind of a selfless act it's like uh, you know an act of selflessness with somewhat of a selfish intention of just wanting to be close to him but also doing something for him because she loves him it's just yeah it's all around so tragic <laughs> uh, yeah that's so beautiful too uh. don't you fret monsieur marius i don't feel any pain a little fall of rain can hardly hurt me. Totally. <sighs> well, Daddy, back to your question. I don't know if we related necessarily to Cosette in any way, but Castle on a Cloud was, I think, our anthem for years. <laughs> so, and we you would know. sweep the kitchen and sing in front of windows and perform it on stage so i yeah. i think as far as uh her her child songs were played a big role in our childhood yeah and i'm I'm kind of wondering if you know annie's hard knock life was when you were feeling happy and then castle on a cloud was when you're feeling sad totally. both of them involve like sweeping something <laughs> that's true yeah. well i was gonna say also um just my earliest memories of seeing it in person i remember being surprised at the pieces of the plot that were in between the songs Mm. because I'm struck by that every time we see it actually because the music for so long the music was all we had and also all we cared about I don't think we cared necessarily about all the depth of the stories and the plot line and so I remember seeing it for the first time like oh there's stuff that happens between these events (laughs) or even really during the songs I don't know if we even really had a great understanding. Maybe you did, but I don't remember having yeah. a great understanding either of like, oh, this is what they're actually talking about. And oh, they're going to war. This is, a, <laughs> I know it wasn't really war, but they were going to do this big battle cry and put this, put on True. this big, whatever, revolutionary move and and not really being aware of that or caring. To me, it all reflects back to how, I'm, I'm sure we brought you to at least one show of the original run, the original production 
I mean, late 90s, I think, probably. But it's it's got so much stuff in it. I, I guess it makes me think, this is a question for you, Holly. You know, we brought them to the show, I'm sure, pretty young, at least maybe 10 to 12 year old range. Yeah, I think maybe Under 10. younger. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Right. So a lot of it is pretty intense. There's a lot of gray area. I, I don't have a clear sense of this now, but we didn't just like bring them to the show and plop them down and say, hey, look, Les Mis, isn't it great? We, particularly you, had been introducing them to theater for years. So what was your thinking about that at the time? So we, we had been listening to the music, I think, for a couple of years before you guys saw it, because Dave, you and I saw it first, right? right? Yeah, and loved it. And loved it. Right. And we had taken you to local theater and local musicals. And that was something you most, you know, you pretty much enjoyed. And then back when you were really little, I was doing some theater locally, and I was writing a little bit of theater locally and some music. And so we would be driving in the car. (laughs) You guys would be singing a song that I had written that you had seen in a little play. It was just another way of storytelling. And you were both Mm -hmm. like, so into stories. And one of the things that I think I learned from the two of you when you were really little is how you liked to watch movie musicals. And I remember like with The Sound of Music, the very beginning, you really just liked to watch the scene with all the Von Trapp kids in it singing the Do Re Mi song and traipsing (laughs) through whatever city that was in their play clothes made out of the curtains or whatever. And then then there became like another song that you really liked and you would just request those songs. And then over time, you would watch a little bit more until you sort of got like the connective tissue in between the songs. And so that was kind of how it just followed really naturally when we started listening to music from Les Mis that I kind of did it that same way. I don't remember thinking about it. Like I don't remember having a grand plan about it, but I remember that the songs were so moving to me and they were so rich in what they told about the story. And I remember talking to you guys about, oh, this is the part where this is what happens. And then listen to what he says in this song. (laughs) And I would like make everybody be quiet and turn it up so you could hear that one line. I'm sure you remember that. (laughs) And so I think by the time that you got to see it, you had a lot of anchor points in the show that were familiar to you. And I think you did have a little bit of an idea of what some of the songs were actually about, but it is so different when you see them acted out. They just come to life in such a different way. It's like the difference between reading it off of a, like in a storybook versus just seeing it multidimensionally acted out. It was a joyful thing for our whole family, really, because you were, you guys just kind of soaked it up. Yeah. I think that's kind of was our that was like our approach. Like I would tell you the story of one specific song and what was happening. And then as you got more interested in another song later in the show, I I was able to tell you, well, remember the guy who did this and this and that song? Well, this is what happens to him next. And it was just like the next chapter in the story with another song that went with it. And you're really cool. Yeah. Because of our, our different religious backgrounds, Mm-hmm. We didn't go to church every Sunday or we didn't go to synagogue every every Friday or anything. But there is such a strong sense of morals and values in this show. And I think we've all talked about the bishop scene where oh my God. the bishop, I mean, <laughs> anytime I even think about it, I start to choke up because it's, it's one of the most empathetic, amazing scenes in theater is when the bishop you know, gives the candlesticks to Valjean. I gave these also. Would you leave the best 
And I feel like there is something about translating those values that we held through this story. Do you totally? Do you kids? Hundred percent. Did you kids get any of that when you were younger, or are you just finding about that now? <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I think like Jean Valjean's whole background with the stealing the bread and then going to jail because that's illegal, but it was to feed his family. That's like sort of the most dramatic you can feel in your gut that that's just the wrong outcome for that degree of a crime. And I think it's almost like overplayed if you know, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say? Like it's a little bit dramatized, but I think that's because that's the point. Like you, you have to feel that gut feeling like that's just not right. And so I think that was clear, you know, even as a kid, making it that simple, it it really actually works because it just resonates with anyone, that contrast sort of between good and bad and what those words really mean or don't mean. Right. So, so yes, to your question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I think what another thing I think about when I kind of reflect on the meaning that this show has had for our family, not just you girls, but also the boys, is that our understanding of the ideas, even for me and daddy, I think, and we were already adults when we saw it for the first time, but our understanding of the themes in the show has deepened. As we get older, it, it has deepened over time. And like some of the things feel more nuanced than they used to, and some almost feel less nuanced right. than they used to. Totally. Yeah. And I think, too, about like the songs that you girls really hooked into at first, like Castle on a Cloud, because that's a little girl just like you were little girls. And it's this sweet sort of fantasy song. And it's it's got that um, melancholic feeling to it in the melody. But then as you got older, you started to relate to some of the older characters and the idea of falling in love and realizing that the person that you love loves you back. Like it just it just there's so much to grow into with that show. It's never you're never too old for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm just, I'm thinking about the complexity too of, you know, I always think of Valjean as the ultimate father, but also I think he's both instructive in a positive and a negative way. Like he totally withholds his past, which is like, it's a really shitty thing to do actually, because Cosette has no understanding of where she came from and, and all that stuff, which really sucks. But then- The fact that, you know, there's that trope of, you know, the father being so protective of his daughters that he's like meets the boys with a shotgun at the front door or something. And the fact that he saves Marius's life (laughs) is like, yes, that's what a father should do. Understanding, not necessarily understanding the dynamics between the two of them, not necessarily approving of the dynamics between the two of them, but being so supportive of his daughter that he would carry her boyfriend through the sewer to save him is yeah, kind of like, absolutely. I don't know, it's both of those things. It's, it's instructive amazing. both po- positively and negatively. That is so funny, you guys, because I had those two exact thoughts that you just so nicely articulated (laughs) while I was listening to the soundtrack today. And one other thing that struck me, I have never felt a whole lot of empathy for Cosette and Marius's sort of like intense love and then they have to go their separate ways. Like I, I get the drama of it until recently. I'm like, God, 
It is so hard. I mean, probably just because of my own long distance relationship that I'm in. It's so hard when life makes it hard to be physically together. And despite how dramatic their sort of falling in love is, I was like, God, that really sucks for the first time ever. So (laughs) yes, every there's always something new to feel from the show. The second thing to mommy's point was how we were sort of tied to Cosette's Castle on a Cloud framework of her understanding of suffering, sort of. What struck me this time around was that it comes right after Fontaine has sung Mm -hmm. her song, I Dreamed a Dream. And it's Mm -hmm. like, it's the same. It's like they're having, it's a mirror sort of, of an older person's concept of, I want the world to be better. And she's really suffered and she has a lot of emotion to sing about. And then Cosette's version of that is like sort of the childlike, still has some wonder in her concept of it and hope, more hope than Fontaine had. I totally agree with that. And I think as just to your point, mommy, too, about like, there's something at any age, like every time you watch it, something else jumps out. And that I recently watched the movie with a friend and the Fontaine's role as kids meant so little to us. Her songs were kind of overdramatic. The whole, a tiger comes at night. We were like, what is she even talking about? And watching it. Now it is so heartbreaking and all she wants is to make sure that her daughter is safe and happy before she passes away. That's like, Oh my God. And it just like the, the tragedy behind that just jumps out so much more than it ever did. So I agree with that completely. The other dynamic that I have just started to, that I we talked about as kids too, because the Javert and Jean Valjean dy- dynamic is so intense. And, yeah. you know, it feels like Javert is such a bad guy and he's chasing Jean Valjean everywhere. And like, why does he just let this go? And I remember at some point having a pretty in-depth conversation about the song, the confrontation song and about what they're both singing about and how, what they're both explaining. Right. And they both really, really believe they're right. And how yes. you have these really intense moral dilemmas and not necessarily agree with another person or that there can be two truths. Like there is a place for crime and punishment and the law and justice to be served. And there's a place that there is, you know, you have to do things to survive that morally might look different than through a, you know, criminal justice system. And I mean, that relates so much to my work now as a professional, but, and they just see those dynamics play out day after day after day. But, and I think our system still kind of make those things complicated sometimes just like they did in the show but I think that dynamic I remember talking about that as as kids and being like why is he chasing him why (laughs) whatever we don't really get it and now being like god it is so intense there's just so many messages in there well and just as you were talking about it I think it it really clicked in for me your work day to day is systematic systems that are set up to theoretically make people's lives better but that have so many rules and regulations and procedures and stuff like that, that I'm sure many times you're dealing with a variation of like that exact dichotomy of like, what is best for this individual? What is the rule that tells me that I have to act this way? And like, at what point can we just let it go? Like when, you know, I mean, we've got people that are dealing with stuff from years prior. I mean, it's similar. Like it's totally similar. People's past kind of haunts them. And at what point, like, okay, this is silly, but also we've got a system in place that sometimes does good and there's a reason for it and it keeps order to our society and whatever, all the things that it does. But yeah, it's really, 
It's intense, especially the last time I watched it, just the meaning behind it. And because I work with children and mothers and parents in really difficult situations too, the Fontaine, both of those themes just are huge to me right now (laughs) in this phase of life, next phase of life. It might be something different. I'm so glad you mentioned about Javert because I do remember that's one of the ideas that when you're little, when you guys were four and five and we were singing the songs and I was telling you the stories of the songs there's not really a lot of room for nuance when you're that age. But when you get older, you can get your head around that kind of nuance better. And exactly what you were saying, Bryce, like he didn't mean to be a bad guy. And when you're little, it's easier to see he's the bad guy and John Valjean is the good guy. But as you get older, the nuance is what becomes so interesting about those two characters. And the fact that he cannot live in a world where... The guy who should have, by all rights, taken his life, didn't take his life. He mm-hmm. does not, he can't like get his head around that. And he has to end his own life because he cannot make any sense out of it, which is like, that's so extreme. Like that, there's not a lot of nuance to that particular part. But the way that he goes through the story and understanding more clearly that he's not bad, he's just believed so strongly in his belief system that he doesn't have any other um, options available to him besides doing what he does. And you start to like, you start to get empathy for him. Ah, totally. totally. Yeah. Well, and that's what I, I know, daddy, you want to move on to the next question? But the last <laughs> thing I'll say is that to me, it's not only the guy who should have taken his life, but I feel like Jean Valjean represents to him what he has devoted his life to change. He has devoted his life to catch criminals. Right. And because Jean Valjean is like, dude, I have a child to take care of. I'm trying to, save this kid whose mom just died like i've got stuff to do and he cannot it's not just the guy that should have had a chance to kill him and didn't but it's like compromises his entire life's goal and understanding of good and bad that you just cannot cope from that world from the world of Jean Valjean, there is nowhere i can turn there is no way to go right. i think it's also it's a reflection of a story that comes from a thousand page book mm-hmm. in that, I mean, I don't, I've, I haven't read the book, but you get a glimpse of enough to know all the things that have influenced him, including the fact that in his later life, like in the later scenes, he's been made to be in charge of cleaning things up in Paris as all right. these revolutionaries have started to like, quote, get out of control. So it's like reinforcing that state based, rule based. Mm-hmm idea of how you go through life. And so, Mm -hmm. again, in a way, he's a little bit victimized by that. Like, it's taking his worst instincts and reinforcing them. Right. And so then, yeah, by the time it by the time it breaks, and he realizes how broken it is, he breaks. I mean, he has nothing left to do but just like fall, literally fall. That makes me wonder if there's a parallel between some of the sort of police brutality type of stuff happening in our current climate. But this is why the this show is so timeless, right? There's like, so the interplay of like inequality of opportunity and power differential and what is born out of desperation and right and wrong. And all of that is just relevant at any time. It also just makes me, I mean, I think what you said, daddy is so true. And I, I've read stories and I obviously, I mean, I work with people who come from really tough situations. And I listened to a story recently about a cop who went undercover to do drug busts. And he felt so compromised because everybody that was using drugs or selling drugs, mostly using drugs, was using to 
you deal with something traumatic that had happened to him, it was so morally confusing to him to sure. be trying to catch these people that then he, in order to do so, built relationships with. And I just think about Javert, like getting into going into the trenches and seeing what somebody like Fontaine was going through, selling her teeth and her hair and whatever, everything that she had to do. And how can you punish people when that is the system that they're living in? And, but yeah, you still have a job to do. I mean, it's just, yeah, I think those themes just play out over and over again. But I mean, it's just part of like the complexity of our world that Les Mis just captures in such powerful ways. Okay, we need to talk about this specific production at least a little bit since we all saw it. I think even if you don't have precise memories of earlier productions, everybody had seen it before this last time that we saw it. Do any of you guys have any specific thoughts about this most recent production and how it might have been different? Well, I mean, I do remember in the earlier productions that I only have vague memories of, but like Bryce was hinting to earlier, there's a the barricade scene is a very dramatic stage setting and it's a little bit it's not all that realistic per se Mm -hmm. but the drama of it kind of makes some of the contrast of people's different situations really apparent in a nice way Eponine's death is so poignant and gentle and then it's like contrasted with all this violence and I thought the whole setting of it despite it maybe being over dramatized in earlier productions was so effective and I remember the most recent production being a little disappointing. I think it the setting didn't move as much mm-hmm. and it was a little bit less dramatic and so the contrast that is kind of fun to witness in the earlier productions was not so clear to me. One thing I think I didn't realize until the most recent production that we saw in Richmond is in the original production, you see Gavroche going over the barricade and the turntable turns and you see him out in kind of the open field picking up bullets from other people and that's where he gets shot. Without that turntable, you see him coming back over the barricade and getting shot at that point, which I think changes. When you see him in that kind of open field on the other side of the barricade, he looks so alone and so small and so So vulnerable. And there's something that is so dramatic about that, that I think you lose without the turntable that turns the whole barricade around. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, as we've talked about, the CD in particular, the soundtrack played a huge role in our childhood. And so that (laughs) there's a couple voices from the original production that will never be There's incredible actors out there with incredible voices and they will just never compare. And I think (laughs) for me, that always jumps out. Jean Valjean and Eponine in particular, I'm quick to (laughs) write off anybody who doesn't sound exactly like them, which is not fair. And so I remember that that always I always have a bit of a disappointment that the people that we're seeing on stage are not those same actors from the original Broadway production. So that always jumps out to me every time we see it. But I remember that from the most recent one. And then the other thing is just that, that was the obviously the oldest I had seen it, similar to what we've been saying the whole time, but just how my understanding and the meaning that it has for me changes each time. And I remember walking away feeling different and more significantly moved and so emotional. I feel like I cried throughout. Some of that is like excited tears when the, you know, look down theme music starts. <laughs> I feel like I start crying right away. But some of the really sad and tragic scenes are just, they hit so much harder the older I've gotten. And I remember walking away from that production like, I I can't do anything else. <laughs> this I have to sit in this and decompress because that smacked me in the face. And I don't remember having those feelings right. before. So yeah. I think that continues to change even seeing the movie a couple weeks ago just each time it just has more and more meaning 
for a theater director, the kind of things that you can do with Les Mis, it's just a great tapestry to kind of work yeah. directorial magic on. Because again, I remember from the last production we just saw, there was all sorts of business going on with Gavroche that mm-hmm. was not scripted. It was totally directed. It wasn't even like there wasn't even dialogue around it. But you saw right. his relationship with the revolutionaries build in a different kind of way. And that was yep. total that was total director business. Right. Well, and probably the actors too. Like well, yeah. actors find kind of things with each other too but then wherever it started organically the directors and the whatever the production as a whole let that grow and be there and so then even though like you're saying that wasn't the point of the scene we still get to see it whereas in a movie they're like no that's not what should be in the camera this is what we need to see in the camera the other thing that i think is such a strength of the music which you just get to appreciate in a different way when it's not in the setting of a movie is how the music carries all the emotions of what you should feel at that time. I mean, there's so many moments in Jean Valjean's songs where he hits a higher octave and it's like such a poignant, deep, vulnerable moment for him. Or Marius actually does this really well, I thought, with Eponine. There's a moment when Eponine comes to the battlefield and he's singing to her like, you're crazy for being here. And then his tone totally changes. And he's like, actually, while you're here, can you transport this letter for me? You might get shot. I've got you worried. Now I have. That shows you like me quite a lot. There is a way that you can help. And you hear all of that in the quality of his voice and the way the music's written and when it's shot like a movie you know you they change the whole setting to sort of match that and you don't need that like you feel it more from the music right. mm-hmm. it's more raw and emotional if you just have it in the music yeah. to me I think, too, that like it is, I mean, the same thing that people make fun of about Les Mis is what makes it so incredible is it it is a little over the top. Like the emotions are big. It's a big story. It's got big things to say. The characters feel big things. And in a movie, the camera is right up in your face. And so you have to do your things much less big because a little bit of expression goes a long way. So you still you're sort of still getting the bigness of it. but it's just the bigness feels really different that as compared to the characters who are like emoting and singing these very dramatic songs so beautifully. And it's all just like fraught with emotion and it's big, but it's also a big stage. Right. It loses something to have the actors have to do a little bit less with such big, big feelings Bryce is raising her hand. Go ahead, Bryce. I have one last thing that I wanted to say. I wasn't sure if there would be a spot for it, but it goes back to what Sage was saying in the beginning about how tragic Ebenezer's story is. And I have a very, very distinct memory that I wanted to bring up. I remember driving in the car and I remember mommy wearing sunglasses and crying during Ebenezer and Marius's The the Little Fall of Rain song. And I remember watching mommy cry and being like, why are you crying? (laughs) And how mommy kind of went through kind of the whole history. And it, it just, it goes back to what Sage was saying before. And I think it is also just one of those kind of complicated themes that I wanted to bring up because I I remember mommy going into a lot of detail about not only the tragedy of that moment of like, she's dying and it's really sad, but also kind of their whole history, how Cosette's kind of started out with kind of as an orphan 
and living with these people who didn't really care about her and didn't really love her. And Ebenine was much better taken care of and she had parents and whatever. And she grew up with these kind of scummy parents who didn't really care about her and ends up totally looking at Cosette and having so much envy for what she has in her life. She has a dad who just loves her and wants everything, you know, wants her to be as happy and successful as possible. And the man that Ebenine has wanted for her whole life and how their stories just switched so just turned completely on their heads and now she's dying and I remember so specifically never putting any of that together really and I remember so specifically being like why are you crying which now I'm like duh there's so many (laughs) reasons to cry why am I not crying (laughs) but being like pretty young I mean I think probably under 10 and having all of that explained and I don't know if that's part of why Ebenine became kind of a favorite I feel like for us for a while but or at least for me but yeah I just think that is one of the early memories I have of kind of talking through those themes and just so powerful I, I feel exactly the same way as Bryce about the two characters that I I can't even listen to anyone else almost. They're renditions of the songs and it's always Eponine and Jean Valjean. I don't know why it's those two, but something about their vocal range and the complexity of, and the way they change their vocal tone at different pitches and the complexity of what they sing about and the tragedy, like they really, those two original Broadway cast recording people they they have my heart forever <laughs> as part of the podcast i always give every production a grade and even though <laughs> i felt this 2014 revival was not matching the original and i think that seems to be a common sentiment i still give it an a because it was a pretty darn good production have anybody dissent from that opinion i just can't i can't give it anything but an a <laughs> but <laughs> It's hard for me to conceive of taking on any Broadway show. They all seem like so fantastically difficult to execute well. But this one is just so full of emotion, deep, painful, complex emotion. And it's just so much to take on. It has to be good casting. It has to be good singing. It has to be good ensemble work. It has to be good violin. Like there's so much... um, depth you have to get yeah. into so good try it'll never be the perfect one probably for us um, good try <laughs> sorry i have i have another thought because i can't stop but i was just thinking about the song a heart full of love which is just like one of the most beautiful songs ever heart and full of love. he was never mine to it just captures so much and it's so Hopeful. And I, I was just thinking about like all the tragic stuff that happens in the show, but it also captures like these beautiful, optimistic, light moments that. I mean, it just, that's what makes it so powerful, I think, is it doesn't only capture the sadness really beautifully. It captures this huge range of the human experience, really. Mommy, would you give it a D, do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I think basically we've given ourselves as a family a big theater nerd A is what we've done. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Oh, Oh my God, you know that line in that song? I think it's in Heart Full of Love where Marius and Cosette are meeting and the one says, I am lost. And one says, I am found. And they're like, the opposite words. And they both mean the same. then do you remember that they say, yes, Benin says a heart full of love and it sounds like she says a fart full of love. 
<laughs> yes, that's right. So so, and also in the the conflict song where conversation. Yeah, where he says, You put a seal on my fate. But when you guys were little, you thought he was saying a seal on my face. <laughs> oh, is that what it was? I could not remember. One time you were like, Mommy, why does he put a seal on his face? <laughs> 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 all right well london 2024 yeah. <laughs> yep could talk about this for another hour clearly but uh we're going to have to wrap it up so thank thank you everybody i love you all Likewise. this was super fun we it should um, we should you know get together and talk about these kinds of things more often Absolutely. or we can just like, have a weekly lay myth yeah that's right this <laughs> this podcast has changed from a show about all of Broadway's shows to a show about one of Broadway's shows. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we could just dissect one song every week and then we'll dissect one character and then we'll dissect like one piece of set. We can go forever. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, we really could. Okay. I like it. Clearly we could. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. This was Love awesome. you. Love you. If you have ideas on how you'd like to see this podcast enhanced or expanded or improved, or if you just want to drop me a line to say how much you love it just the way it is, please email me at timbertodpods at gmail.com. This podcast is a production of Timber Todd Pods. Please check out our other podcast, Convince Me I Care, by going to convincemeicare.com. Our theme music is by Mason Timberline. Please come back in two weeks. I hope I see you then. Bye.